Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. These days, many people like to talk about sustainability, and Andy Hoffman, an environmentally-oriented business professor at the University of Michigan, is certainly no exception. But for Andy and his longtime friend and mentor John Ehrenfeld, our current challenge is no longer simply convincing everyone of the merits of sustainability, but rigorously investigating how we can go beyond buzzwords and actually start changing the societal attitudes that led to many of our pressing predicaments in the first place. After all, the whole notion of sustainability implies that we should keep going. But what we really need to do is somehow embark on a radical shift in our beliefs and values. You started off in chemical engineering, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then civil engineering and management. And so, how did, so tell me this, this whole business of the, the environment and the corporate world and, and the cross-section between the two. How did that all start for you? Well, the environment started when I was an undergraduate. I was getting a chemical, chemical engineering degree for, I have no idea why. I like chemistry, I like math, and right. give it about as much thought as an 18-year-old puts into things like that. Um, and then Love Canal happened while I was an undergrad, and I thought, you know, wow, I mean, that's something that I can devote my chemical engineering degree to making sure it never happens again. And so I minored in environment, environmental engineering, which at that time was just wastewater engineering. It wasn't mm-hmm. around pollution or anything like that. Yeah, that must have been very new even still, even to call it environmental engineering. Well, no, it was, it was there because it really was around treating waste okay. and, and clean water. It was very, very instrumental. First job was with the EPA, hated it. Um, worked there for two years and just felt like I was making paper. And uh, a funny tangent to the story is I, um, I decided, well, I need to be higher in government. So I applied to Harvard and Berkeley for public policy, got in and froze. I couldn't get myself to do it. So hmm. helped a friend build a deck at the time and got a charge out of it. So started scanning the papers and uh, accepted a job as a carpenter in Nantucket. And uh, that was Jack Welsh's house, the CEO of General Electric. And within two years, I was supervising a 29,000 square foot house in southwestern Connecticut. Hmm. And did that for five years. Decided to go back to grad school for construction management. Um, but environmental issues got exciting then because business was doing it because they wanted to. When I was working at EPA, I was just a policeman. No one wanted to do this, and it was just a pain when I right. showed up and just ruined people's days. Right. But now it was strategic, and then I was offered a chance to do a PhD, free ride at MIT, and, and took it. And when you, were, when you were a builder for these years, all these years, did you, you were still, were you reading passionately about the environment? Were you, how, uh, what was your mindset at the time? Were, were I was, I was going in a totally different direction. I was sowing some oats. Um, it was a little bit on the environment. Um, a funny story, I was a, a permit writer for a um, facility in southwestern Connecticut that turned into a Superfund site. And so I knew who the um, local activists were, so I called them up and said, believe it or not, I'm Andy Hoffman and I don't work for the EPA anymore. They, were su- they were suspicious and they said, Let me, let's meet with you first. And they decided I was a plant from the company right, right, sure. and wouldn't meet with me. Um, that was about the extent of it. I was really devoted to the building and, um, 
and it wasn't terribly environmental. I mean, 29,000 square feet. No, right. one, no one really needs that kind of space. Well, it's, a, it's a big environment all to itself. I yeah. Would, I, would, <laughs> I, would, I would imagine. And so, um, but your passion, once you went back and you did your PhD at MIT, uh, and this was in civil engineering and, and management, right. right? And then you were able to get some of these old fires rekindled, presumably. So how did that happen? Well, it, just the idea of actually trying to come about, you know, focus on positive change rather than just negative enforcement. And right. so when companies started to see that there was a connection between their strategy and their, their ultimate interests in protecting the environment, that's when it got really exciting. And there was a lot of activity at MIT at the time. John Ehrenfeld had just started a program on business and the environment, and there was a there was a um, sort of a critical mass of, of students that really was an exciting time right at the beginning, where this was all brand new. It I was, was going to ask you about this. So, how many other people were in the program? How many? Well, there was no specific program. I mean, John taught in something called technology and policy management. Right. My degree, I just made it up. MIT is a very entrepreneurial environment, and so I just made up a dual degree. And cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and it required six committee members, three from each school, which was a pain. Um, right. But I just made it up, and MIT will let you do that. And uh, But there were a number of other PhD students who were interested in the topic at the same time in various schools. And then the technology and policy management program was developing you know, a master's program, and a lot of students interested there. So John had a lot of, a lot of energy around him, and it was really exciting. And But when I'm thinking civil engineering, so I'm... Maybe it's because I'm very limited in my thinking of these things, mm -hmm. but I'm thinking bridges, you know, the yeah. stand, standard sort of stuff. This seems completely removed from that, or at least far removed from that. Is, in, in what sense was this more standard civil engineering, that half of it? Yeah. Well, usually a school will have an engineering management program within their engineering school. Oftentimes it's in industrial engineering, but MIT it was in civil engineering. So okay. I was actually in the, in the construction management branch of civil engineering. Okay. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you uh, was sprung from a, a sense of frustration that I've long had, and I'm sure a lot of other people have had. And I think it's, I think it's changing a little bit, and, and I'm going to throw it over to you to, to describe it a little bit more for me. But the, the frustration that I've always, always had is it seems like there, certainly when I was young, there were two types of people, right? There were the business people that lived in the real world, and they were saying, we have to, we have to make money, we're living in a liberal uh, market. Uh, I guess you don't use the word liberal in this country, but a market economic system, we're living in a liberal democracy, we have to, have, we have to exercise our right to be able to, to spread the word of capitalism and, and be entrepreneurial and be free and drive, drive the market. And then you had the people who were worried about the environment. And they, it was really this, this polarity. You'd have the tree huggers on one side and you'd have the business people on the other side. And the business people on the other side were you know, busy raping the environment at any cost whatsoever to make a buck, and the tree huggers were incredibly uh, economically uh, ignorant. And, and in fact, they would be making all sorts of cases for things that, that, uh, that might be so, uh, might, be, might, might distort the economy in such a significant way that it, it might have negative repercussions for the environment out of a sense of ignorance. And so this was a, the frame of the debate, certainly when I was younger, and it was very, very frustrating to watch this. I wasn't involved in one side or the other, but there was a sense of, let's move together somehow towards having some awareness of the respective issues on both sides of this divide. In my sense, anecdotally, is that this divide has uh, certainly uh, isn't quite as stark as it used to be, but there still might be remnants of this. And when I look at some of your work, uh, my interpretation as a non-specialist, as a lay person, and all the rest of this, looking at this is, well, here's somebody who's really trying to constructively 
drive some sense of consensus and some sense of understanding across this divide. Is that the way you look at yourself, or, or is, that, uh, is that just too simplistic a picture? No, I, I think that's accurate, but I think the, the, um, the extreme voice is still there and it's really important. In the environmental movement, uh, think about it as now splitting between what might be called bright greens and dark greens. And the bright green environmental groups look at uh, the market as the solution, business as an ally. The dark greens look at business as the enemy and the market as the problem. Now, they're both necessary to create energy to get change to happen. There's an idea from political science, um, this gentleman named Haynes developed it called the radical flank effect. And think about, he, de he developed around the, the civil rights movement. So think about Martin Luther King comes along. Right. And his message, white America's choking on us, too extreme. Until Malcolm X comes along and pulls the, the flank further out. It's called radical flank effects. And now Martin Luther King's seen as a moderate. So in the environmental movement, those protesters protesting the Keystone Pipeline, uh, logging, things like that, are still critically necessary to sort of stake Right. flag in the terrain, and then the more consensus-oriented organizations can try and work with the market system and pull it in a direction that will promote positive change. So if I was a militant environmentalist and I took this seriously, wouldn't I want to get a whole bunch of people out who were just radical, crazy, militant environmentalists to push out that flank even more? I'd want to get some rabbit. I'd want to do that deliberately and say, well, you think I'm extreme. Well, Give me, give me a year, I'll show you that I'm a moderate compared to these <laughs> Well, there's a limit on how far you can push it before you start to get into what's considered legitimate. Like the Earth Liberation Front, um, Earth First, these are terrorist groups according to the FBI. So you can, you can push it too far. You can start spiking trees in, in forests and uh, start hurting or even killing people. And, mm -hmm. and that, is, that's, that can actually create a negative flank effect where everyone will look and go, Oh, you all burned down Shelley's and Aspen and free minks and mink farms, and you're all crazy, so I'm not going to listen right. to any of you. So. Right, so tarring everybody with the same brush. Right, uh, right. Effectively. Both ways. So in, in the years that you've been doing this, how has your work uh, evolved? And I want to get to your later work later on mm -hmm. in, in a moment, but I, I'd like you to trace out some kind of path, not only in, in terms of your thinking, but also in terms of the receptivity of your thinking and, and mm -hmm. how, how that has, in fact, changed uh, the path that you've gone on. Yeah. I think I would answer that in two ways. One, when I first started doing this, um, it wasn't terribly accepted within business schools. Um, I was actually turned down in 1995 for a job at a top tier business school where they said, we really love your stuff in organizational theory, but we think you're too focused on the environment. People were nervous. It was, a, you, are you an advocate or are you a serious academic? Now the environment is a legitimate domain of research, um, which is a positive step. Within the business world, when I first started doing this, I was teaching students to go into companies and teach them that environment has strategic aspects to it, both negative and positive. Now students are going in and finding career paths available to them, and they're even starting to say, I don't want to go in a company and teach them how to do this. I want to do this myself. I want to start my own company. Um, it's changed so much. Now, a second dimension I would add to this is that, you know, environment and sustainability more broadly has really gone mainstream. You have chief sustainability officers and environmental annual reports and, you know, socially responsible investing. It's all there, but the problems continue to get worse. Yeah. And so it's now time to sort of discover, you know, sustainability 2.0. And 
where do we have to go next? We've, you know, there's been change, it's gotten to a certain point, but the problems continue to get worse, so there needs to be more radical shifts. But capitalism is a very malleable system, and it changes through fits and starts, and we've gone through what I call three waves on integrating environment into capitalism. Mm -hmm. First around 1970 with regulation, around 1990 it being strategic, now around sustainability, will drop off, but then we'll pick up again and we'll go through the next iteration of shift. So I want to get to your level of optimism and so forth, and I want to get to flourishing and some of the other comments that you make, or, or at, least, at least one of the two of you make. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but some of the comments that, that are alluded to in, in your work and some other works are that sometimes it's not just a question of going into sustainability, sustainability 2.0, but sometimes uh, the, the current talk of be it uh, green technologies or be it environmentalism or be it sustainability actually inhibits real movement towards, uh, towards perceptive growth of the needs that have to, uh, the needs that we have in order to make society actually a better place. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'll get to that in, in, in a moment, but um, or maybe I shouldn't have brought it up then if I'm going to get to it. <laughs> See how freeform this is? <laughs> so, um, so one thing I'd like you, that you had pointed out to me recently, some of your more recent work, and I'm, I'm happy to go uh, back if, uh, if you think it's appropriate, but this, this question of global warming and uh, an article that just came out not too long ago where you're talking about global warming in terms of the cultural component to, to global warming rather than specifically looking at the science. Obviously, the science is a part of it. So maybe you can speak to that article because I have mm -hmm. some questions about, about it. Well, the article is pointing out that the, um, the public debate over climate change right now is not about CO2 or climate models. It's, a, it's about worldviews and values. It's about beliefs. Um, you know, the central question on climate change as a cultural issue is, do you believe that we as a species have grown to such numbers and our technology to such power that we can alter the global climate and might even have a responsibility to manage it? That's a tremendous shift in... Uh, an individual's conception of themselves, of the world around them, and their place within it. And uh, it's massive. And uh, so what I'm looking at in my work are what are the cultural dimensions of the debate? What, what do people hear when they hear climate change? What buttons does it press? For some people, the answer to that question challenges the notion of God and divine providence. We're not in charge out there. That's hubris to think we are. We're too insignificant. We're too small. God's in charge out there, and how dare you say otherwise? Um, so that's where that 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 you know the, the cultural dimension of this issue. That one of the strongest correlates with someone's belief on climate change in this country and the United States is their political party affiliation. Sure, that tells me that this is a cultural issue. It's not that there's better science education on one side of the political divide as the other. It's the worldviews that are developed within that political ideology that makes them accept or reject the science. I want to talk about the United States a little bit later on because I think it is uh, an outlier in this as it is in so many cultural aspects. An, out, an outlier only in the sense that, I mean, there are climate skeptics in Europe. It just doesn't map neatly onto the political landscape. Therefore, they're not as easily identifiable as a block. Well, I think it's the political landscape, but I think it's actually, I think it's deeper than that. And so I'm happy to have a debate with you about that. <laughs> but, but let me, uh, before I get there, let me just parse some of the things as you do in this article, in fact, because you talk about the different questions that have to be asked. Because when people start throwing things around like global warming, there are all sorts of different 
associations that people have with that. So there's the question of, is the temperature actually rising? Mm -hmm. There's the question of uh, um, uh, w whether or not it can be attributable to man-made sources or whether it can't be attributable to man-made sources. Then there are the, the follow-up questions about uh, what can be done about them or what programs can be invoked or the need for regulation and all the rest of this. And so there's a very clear, um, there's a very clear delineation about what, what questions are strictly scientific, as you make in your article, what questions are, are strictly scientific that you really can't debate. You can't debate the fact that the temperatures are going up. Mm -hmm. You can't debate the fact that there have been systematic studies that have been able to, to demonstrate this. Uh, you can debate whether or not it's, it's, uh, it's sufficiently unique, what, what caused it, what we should do about it, and so mm -hmm. forth. And I think this, this parsing of what's actually going on and uh, is, is important to isolate what's happening. And then you also group that with a particular classes of individuals. Hmm. Um, so you talk about the people who, are, I don't know, you have six classes, I think, yeah. right? The people who, are, uh, who will support, uh, who, who are rabid fans of any sort of regulation uh, to, to, uh, that, that has the words global warming affiliated with it, uh, to people who are incredibly dismissive of the entire idea that, that global warming even exists as a scientific entity. Um, and, and I think the, the important thing that you draw attention to is that, well, the debate starts with what is, what is unequivocally true? Yeah. What can we start off saying this is actually the case? And then where does the cultural aspect fit on top of that? Mm -hmm. is, that is that a fair sure. uh, uh, assessment? Sure. So, so, um, then, then there's a sense of, okay, once we've done that, you, would, you start talking about various tactical aspects of how we can get these people to actually move forward and, and address these issues. And the sense that I have is that the whole paper is really a call to arms of saying, right, there's a bunch of stuff we know scientifically, and, and what we really need now to be able to move forwards is we really need people in the social sciences to actually step up and take a public leadership role. Um, and my question reading this is, okay, how do we pick those people? Hmm. Who were those people who were going to actually step up and do that? And, and how are they going to actually do it? Yeah. There's a number of dimensions in your question, but let me get to the one you got at the end because I think a very interesting one. Social science looking at this is important. That's a different question of whether they should get involved in the public debate. Um, I do think we need more studies from, to understand the sociology and the psychology by which people accept or reject science. And we could be talking about climate change, nanotech, nuclear power, uh, a whole host of issues. Because this isn't, this isn't something that's restricted just to one side of the political divide. Right now, it's the political right that challenges the science on climate change. But you can go to look at the GMO debate. It's the left that's actually challenging the science. It's saying actually yeah. that GMOs are not as bad as, as people are saying they so are. So these are genetically modified organisms? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The question of academics getting involved in the public debate is a very interesting one to me. Right now, we're not trained to do it. We're not given incentives to do it. And it's dangerous terrain. Um, you can go out and start to engage in the public debate. You could find yourself crossing a line where you know, we're academics, so we're supposed to be sources of knowledge, objective sources of knowledge, not advocates. So we should be out there presenting information but once you get pulled into the public debate, it's very hard to control your message and, and, and control how you present it. And if you do get into the public debate, there's a very interesting question. What if the science shifts? How do you pivot after you've been out front in the public? It's a very interesting question. So I think, from a social science point of view, 
we should be thinking carefully about how academics in all domains get involved in public debates, step outside the ivory tower. I think there's a lot of challenges from outside saying, asking universities to explain more of what their benefit is to society, and this is one way to do it. Um, I think one reason that the social debate is so dumbed down is because not enough, enough academics are stepping in and they cede the space to more, um, more biased positions. Yeah. But we need to train academics on how to do it, and we need to learn how to do it. It's not, it's not intuitive. Some people are not very good at it, and it's something you have to be very careful of. Uh, you can take some, you know, Paul Krugman, Jeffrey Sachs, are they academics? I don't think so. I think they're pundits. Well, they used to be. I think they, they used they, to be. They, they used to be. They used to be, but Sorry. they have Nobel Prizes. They can get away with stuff that the rest of us mere mortals can't. So, um, but if an academic's seen as a pundit, you've got trouble. But one of, one of the questions I had as you, as you were talking, and uh, you were talking about what if the science pivots and how do you get involved in this debate, it seems to me that one of the essential things that people like you uh, should be doing, and as you are doing, it's not even necessarily taking positions, but advocating that there should be debate. I mean, there's, there's this meta question of, hey, look, we're not actually having a debate. We're not actually having a rational, objective discourse on what the facts are. We're not parsing them. We're, we're talking past each other. We're not doing anything that's productive at all, other than clinging to these, these ridiculously simplistic uh, positions that we're waving our flags to support. And that's not the way to solve anything, regardless of, of what the truth is and regardless of what we believe. I mean, that's a message which I think has to get out. Mm -hmm. um, and is it, is it getting out? I mean, you're clearly trying to get, that's my sense, is mm -hmm. that you're clearly trying to get it out. So there's the, there's the meta question of, yes, we have to have a better debate, and then there's a question of how we do that. Right. Um, do, you, do you see that changing? Do you see the, you're trying to contribute to it, but do you mm -hmm. see other people doing that as well? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are some academics out there who are trying to, um, get more involved in the public debate. I, you know, there's a group called the Leopold Fellows that comes out of Stanford mm. um, that is around the idea of teaching academics, finding young, aggressive academics who want to have more of a say in, in the issues of public concern in our oh country God. today. Young, aggressive academics getting them to have more to say? <laughs> yeah. What kind of a world are you guys trying to... <laughs> That's all we need, young, aggressive academics. <laughs> Maybe aggressive was the wrong word, but it, it, it's, it's people who want to who want to make a difference in the world using their research work and not just leave it for the scientific journals and citation counts as the measure of their, their impact right. of a life right. of, of work. But I mean, the question, the question not just among academics, but among the general public, especially when it comes to something like global warming is, and you brought it up with Krugman and Sachs and stuff, who are you going to trust, right? right? So, so, so everybody wants to get on their soapbox and say, no, 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 I'm right, and, and, and this is the way it's going to be, and it's a disaster, and they use apocalyptic wording or whatever, or non-apocalyptic wording. These guys are liars, they're thieves, mm. they're crooks, yeah. they're all, all the rest of this sort of thing. And for, for a, guy, a general guy out there who's trying to, who's not a scientist, who's not a specialist, who doesn't work for the you know, International Protocol of Climate Change or any of that kind of stuff, doesn't mm. read through papers, there's a sense of, okay, I hear all this stuff, and all I've got is, you know, whether it's been a stormy spring or whether it hasn't, and I don't really know who to believe. Yeah. And, and, and so it seems like there are, there are, to me, it seems like there are two issues. So the first issue is, how does this guy who's muddled move forward to try to get any sort of comprehension? And then there's, there's the general sense of how authority figures get, get created in the first place mm -hmm. and, and whether or not there should be an authority figure and how, how that actually works. So what advice would you give to... Um, I mean, 
I guess I should, I should end with a question at some point, but let me, let me, let me, <laughs> let me, let me ramble just a little bit more. Because again, I'm thinking of these young, aggressive academics, and yeah. what I'm hearing for you is, yeah, yeah, these academics should go out there, you know, and they should, academics don't do a good enough job interacting with the real world, and they're too much in their ivory towers, and they should go out and have something to say, and I'm thinking, do we really need that? I mean, is, isn't that really the last thing this poor guy who's, who doesn't know anything needs? Mm -hmm. Now there are thousands of, of guys from Stanford who are well <laughs> banging yeah, on his door. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to a question of whether you know, the scientific community has any credibility within the general public. Um, a scientist from Stanford or the National Academies of Sciences or the American Association for the Advancement of Science, they do carry some legitimacy. I think right now we're dealing with a lot of static because it's still, people are still trying to get their heads around this idea of climate change. Um, it will settle out. I mean, the weight of scientific evidence and the weight of the scientific agencies is, is massive that's pushing in this direction saying, Hey folks, this is real, this is happening. And, and so I do think that that will prevail. And I do think that um, there are a couple of forces. Aggressive was probably the wrong word when I was talking about academics, but academics, young academics who want to contribute to the real world and not just to the scholarly community, actually take their work and, and have it have some impact, some use. Um, I, I think that's a, a, a somewhat of a generational shift Young academics now are coming in and saying, you know, I don't want to just contribute to theory. I actually want to see some use from right. my work, some practical use of my work. And uh, that's happening more and more. We have to figure out how they can best do that. And how can they, what, what do you think? I mean, how can they best do that? How can we harness them? Because you, you, you want something reasonably coherent. Yeah. Well, there's so many forces going on at the same time. Um, social media is opening up the game. Um, the idea that the academic journals are this conversation, this private conversation that just comes to a conclusion and they're done. Information is really becoming a public good. People are, you know, because of the blogosphere, because of the web, you can, you can self-publish, you can write a paper that gets out in nature and then, you know, the Cato Institute or um, the American Enterprise Institute, anyone can come up with another paper and the public's weighing both against each other. And so I think right now in academia, we're really trying to weigh this new terrain, this new landscape to figure out how do we fit into it? What is our role? How do we um, show people the, the rigor of our work, which is critically important? We do have peer review. We have rigorous standards. So we, that mm. gives us some legitimacy. Right. But when, when you talk about having impact, so here I want get, to get back to the, the comment I made before about what seems to me the United States being a bit of an outlier. Mm. Um, because not only do you have, in the, in the real political world in the United States, you have these, this very clear fault line between the Republicans and the Democrats and the people who, and, and, and the, as you pointed out in your article, uh, the, the number of climate change deniers, there's, a, there's an overwhelming proportion of, of climate change deniers who are associated with the Republican Party, and there's an overwhelming denier of climate change, very strong advocates who are associated with the Democratic Party, and your average member of the Democratic Party is a, this huge statistically significant probability of being a climate change believer, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, uh, and something similar on the other side of the fence with the Republican Party. Um, and, and my sense is if you were, uh, my sense is that not only is there not this political one-to-one -one correspondence that exists in other, in other countries, countries in Europe, countries in the developed world, Australia and so forth, elsewhere, um, but there also is a general, a much broader acceptance of the scientific realities of climate change 
um, in those other countries as opposed to the United States. So why do you think that is? First of all, is that right? Do you think yeah. I'm right, right or wrong? And, and secondly, if I am right, uh, or if, if that statement is correct, why is that? Well, in the United States, this is where I get to the cultural components of these issues. Right. Um, some people, when they hear climate change, they hear uh, more government. You're going to have to have a carbon tax or a carbon price of some sort. Uh, that's an intrusive government program. Um, yeah, but hang on. I mean, wh one is one way to deal with the problem, and the other is that it but exists. But they're not separate. They're not separate. I can talk to you about a problem, and you can immediately go towards, and that leads to that solution, and I don't, wanna, I don't want any part of it. It's very hard to separate the two. You can't accept a problem and then reject the obvious solution. Yeah, but people in Europe don't want more taxes too, right? I mean, people in Australia, people in Canada don't want yeah, nobody I know about. There's a visceral debate right now in this country of the role of government. There's a whole pressure to downsize the government. It's gotten too big. It's gotten too involved in our lives. That's, that's a, a raging debate, and the climate change debate has gotten caught up in that. Sure, I see that, and, and I see that's very important. But I guess what, what puzzles me as an observer, as an outside observer, and perhaps observing incorrectly, but mm -hmm. uh, as an observer nonetheless, is, the, is this sense of the unwillingness to accept the scientific realities that some shocking proportion of Americans seem to have yeah. that other people don't? It's this, and and that, that has been pointed out by, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy in the Republican Party that said, we're going to be looked at if we keep this up as the non-science party. John Huntsman said that, yeah. So, so I think that's what, I, that's what bemuses me. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and that's what I look at personally as, as an aspect of American exceptionalism. I mean, for, for me, America's this very, very weird place. So I'm not American. America's this very, very weird place where you have a shocking percentage of average people who are completely um, completely ignorant of the most basic scientific processes, just shocking, like statistically significant compared the to anywhere The National Academies of Sciences to right. study, and 75% of Americans don't understand science or the scientific process. So, so there's, whatever, so there's, yeah. there's this horrible, this, and that, that's very, very different. It's not that everyone's so wonderfully scientifically literate and cultured and cultivated and children of the Enlightenment everywhere else, but uh, relatively speaking, mm -hmm. America's very, very different, and there's that. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you have this, this uh, the seat of remarkable scholarship, remarkable innovation, remarkable technology. I mean, if you take the United States out of the global equation in terms of science and research and innovation and technology, I mean, it's, it's a disaster, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is the most important, overwhelmingly, country yeah. on, on the planet. And just about everybody who has had any measure of, of international success in, in science and scholarship and, and not, not, necessarily, not necessarily science, the arts, whatever, anything, has spent some period of time of their lives in the mm -hmm. United States. So it's, it's an enormously important, sophisticated driver in not just science and research, but culture and so forth. So you get, it's so odd, right? It's such a weird place. And, and, and as an observer, you're trying to say, well, how is it possible that this place that represents so much excellence, so much innovation, so much technology that really is to a large extent, driving the planet in mm -hmm. so many positive directions is also filled with this enormous number of you know, incredibly backwards people that can't <laughs> seem to, 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 I mean, it's, it's very odd. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that except to say we're a heterogeneous place. Um, uh, we have institutions in place. You know, there is a, you know, one, one element of this, the climate change debate is distrust of science. And that's a strain that's been in the American society for a long time. But we also have, at the end of the day, the majority of Americans do trust science. They do. Uh, if they get sick, they're going to a hospital. What's that hospital based on? That scientific process. They get in their car. They help their kids with their chemistry or their biology homework. They, they, you know, they, this, this idea that on this one issue, science got it wrong, 
really will not stick because the majority of Americans do believe in science. They do trust the scientific method. They yeah, trust but you, it every you, day. Just, you just told me that there was this academy, the American Academy of Science thing that said that 70% of them don't understand science right. or something. So, I mean, there is still, there's, a, there's a difference between understanding and passing a test and trusting it. If they get sick and the doctor says, we're going to start chemo, they're not going to look at the scientific papers. They're going to say, well, right. I trust that doctor. I'm going to trust the process that got to that conclusion that we should take this step. Right. And, and, and similarly, on a, on a much more mundane level, I mean, they'll turn on a light switch and, and expect the light to actually work. Yep. And, 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 and turn on the car. And, right. Yeah. Right. So, so, so I get that. But, but still, there are some aspects of it. On the political, cultural side of things, when you see these manifestations, when you see... You see Republican Party conventions, and you mm -hmm. see, I mean, these are not, this is not a fringe party. Yeah. <laughs> you, see, you see people who are in major political uh, positions of power in the most you know, dominant country mm -hmm. on the planet that are, that are saying all sorts of things that you're cringing at. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit alarming and it's a bit confusing. So I want to I, I get to the sense of, of one of the reasons why I think it's alarming other than just strange. So the obvious reason why I think it's alarming is that for me, uh, if, if we're going to do anything significant with global warming, it's going to involve global regulation. It's a global problem. It's, it's, it, it's not, however... And you just, you just hit on a hot-button issue for... I mean, let's face it, the Republican Party's gotten pulled further to the right. Yeah. Libertarian, evangelical, um, uh, protection of national sovereignty. That's what the immigration debate is all about. Right. You can start talking about global governance. You have now just hit a hot button issue for the far right. They, they don't want that. They don't want, you know, there's a movement. They don't want even national government. They don't want even local government. <laughs> but but this, these are the hot button issues that right. people hear when they hear climate change. And right. people, you know, Jonathan Haidt does a lot of nice work on the psychology behind decision making. And when you're faced with a difficult situation, your emotions kick in first, reason kicks in second. And so some people can hear climate change and they just instantly hear more government, loss of national sovereignty, the UN is not trusted, and then they will look for reasoning to support that position. Now some may get upset at, that I said that, no, they actually look at the science and their, their, their decision is based on the actual science, but the science is quite compelling that this is real. And, and uh, so what are, they, what are they seeing that gets them to reject the science that's out there? Distrust of environmentalists, distrust of democratic politicians, distrust of scientists, fear of big government, um, uh, falling back on the notion that there is no religious mandate to protect the environment or protect the global climate. God will take care of things. He promised Noah that he would never flood the earth again. The Genesis mandate says that we are stewards of the environment. It is there for our use. It shouldn't, you know, it's not just, it doesn't have inherent value. Um, the, the, the scenarios, some people reject them out, out of hand. The movie The Day After Tomorrow, the idea of Manhattan being underwater with glaciers going down Madison Avenue, people hear that. Nonsense. That's once again the environmental movement saying the sky is falling. All these tumblers start to fall into place to get some people to just say, here they go again. You know, they're, they're anti-development, they're trying to roll us back, they don't want us to develop, and, and they start to, to reject what unfortunately I actually think is unfortunate is that climate change has been coded entirely as an environmental issue. And it's really not. It's a scientific issue, it's a social issue, it's an economic issue, and that will come out over time. But right now, it is coded almost entirely as an environmental issue. You know, who's leading the charge? It's environmental groups. It's Bill McKibben. It's, it's the environmental front. And others who have tried to push it in a different direction, this is, no, this is an issue of economic competitiveness. This is an issue of national security. This is an issue of technological development. Right. You, you make a good uh, analogy in, in your book uh, 
to the whole issue with smoking in the tobacco industry and how that was something similar, that there was, for a long time, there was, there was very, very significant um, uh, scientific evidence. And, and it took a while before it actually caught on and, and, and there was a, a ripple through the culture and people actually started recognizing this because, again, there were powerful interest groups that were at place and, and all the rest of this. Yeah. Um, so is it just a question of waiting or do we actually have to do anything oh, no, to, you, to, you, to trigger it? Social change isn't a linear process. It can go through sudden shifts. It needs advocates. It needs social entrepreneurs trying to push it, taking advantage of events as they emerge. Sandy's a critical event. You know, you can look at Sandy and Katrina. One created change, one didn't. They ostensibly are similar in that there was a massive storm that whacked a major urban center. One hit a minority, politically disconnected, poor population. One hit a white, politically connected, affluent population. One didn't have any spokesman to bring it onto the national stage. Another one had Michael Bloomberg um, right before the presidential election. The cover of Business Week said, it's global warming, stupid. It, it was framed as climate change. People tried to connect Katrina to it. It didn't work. This one did. That is the idea of social entrepreneurs stepping forward, using an event, taking advantage of an event. You know, people have mocked Rahm Emanuel. He said, never waste a good crisis. But that sounds social theory. People change in the face sure. of something that disrupts their common beliefs. Well, it's, it's sound tactics. I mean, he probably shouldn't have said it in such a way that people knew that he said it. But, yeah. but <laughs> that's, 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 a whole, that's a whole different issue. But here's what makes me squeamish when, when I hear this, this sort of social entrepreneurs use the crisis, leverage it. So as somebody with a scientific disposition, I'm thinking, I, I'm very comfortable with, with the scientific consensus that has been established about global warming. Uh, I'm very comfortable about the fact that there is a, a, a clear pattern uh, based upon all sorts of data about what has happened over a long period of time. Uh, and and, and it's, it's very clear what, what, is the more, what is on the more speculative side, what is uh, on the more established side, and so forth. But once people start looking at individual data points, like, oh, there was a storm, there was a oh, big yeah. storm, yeah. and so it's doing this, or, oh, you know, the weather was, you know, th th then you're, you're, you're facing the danger of someone else coming along saying, there's no global warming because it was really cold this winter, you know, mm -hmm. and, and this kind of silliness. So, so, yep. you, so I think there's a danger in, in maybe misusing the science. I understand what people are trying to do. They're yep. using an event to get attention and, and, and focus people on that. But isn't there a risk of, of maybe jeopardizing the scientific process by doing that? It depends on how it's done because, you know, the scientists step forward right after Sandy to say, this storm is not climate change. This storm was not created by climate change, but climate change created the conditions by which it was more extreme than expected. The ocean was warmer. Um, and so what they're trying to do is take it, because weather is not climate, you're absolutely right, but try and get the process going where people can, when they're open to the issue, people respond to what's salient and personal. That's why polar bears sell and snail darters don't. It's charismatic megafauna. People have this affinity to it, this reaction to it, it pulls the heartstrings. There, there are studies... You you obviously, you have a fondness for snails. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, there are studies to show that the people who have been exposed to extreme weather events are more inclined to believe climate change is real because they, they can accept that the, 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 the environment can turn nasty on them, can turn hostile. Yeah, but I don't want to convince them that way. I want to convince them by educating them about science. No, but you, you, you start with the data event of a weather event, but then you you quickly transition and say, this is not climate change. Climate change is long-term trends in global mean temperatures. It's about broad-scale shifts over a longer period of time. But this is the door open. Okay. And, and this is a communication effort that, that a lot of scientists get upset over, as you are right now. But 
scientists need to, to recognize that, you know, you might have the right idea, you might have the right answer, but now you've got to convince people it's the right answer. Sure. You'll spend 10% of your time coming up with the answer. You're going to spend 10% of your time convincing people it's the right thing and get them to do something about it. That's where the communication has to come in. And scientists who think that I just have to come up with my answer and people are going to accept it and ignore the social and political context of what they're doing, they're, they're really missing the point. And climate change really did not become a contested issue until Kyoto started to come into form. Not when it was signed, but before, when it, when it started to threaten some very powerful economic and political interests. And they were able to mobilize in order to get this movement to say, no, it's not happening because in, in the business parlance where I'm coming from, I describe climate change as a market shift. In a market shift, you're going to have winners and losers. And the, right. win, the losers will resist the market shift. That's what we're watching sure. right now. And they're funding efforts to try and debunk the science. That's a critical part of the debate in the United States. So, so, so two things. One point of clarification. Um, so I completely agree with, with the idea that you can't just say, here's the science, here's the science. You have to get people's attention. I get my, my point is, you get their attention, and then you follow up. And I'm not super convinced. I'm not watching as closely, perhaps, as I should. But I'm not super convinced with this getting their attention through Hurricane Sandy or getting their attention this way or the other way, um, that, that that coherent, responsible following up is actually happening. Maybe it is. I hope mm -hmm. it is. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I, that, that would be my response. I certainly completely agree that you, you can't just sit back and say, oh, well, uh, we're just going to present scientific data. And if these people are scientifically illiterate, then the hell with them. And, mm -hmm. and, and in fact, um, I have been uh, very, very angered by... Uh, by, by the global warming advocates for a long period of time because there's a lot of rhetoric from people who are associating themselves with science, who mm -hmm. are throwing stuff out that isn't necessarily true, mm -hmm. or that they're using all sorts of ad hominem attacks. This, this notion that, well, we're a member of the educated elite and we understand we're the scientific guys mm -hmm. and so we understand it. And anybody who doesn't do that is just some knuckle-dragging cretin who you know, clearly doesn't do anything. And, and not only is that counterproductive in terms of moving forwards, but sometimes it's doing more of a disservice to science because you're in fact uh, framing things incorrectly. You're stating all sorts of untruths. But that's what happens when, the, when, when any kind of scientific issue gets thrown into the public. Different people take up the charge and become associated with it. And right now the environmental movement has been sort of the leading force on climate change and some have, have gone beyond where they should as the other side has gone beyond where they should. The, you know, how do we get credible scientific information into the public in a way that doesn't get distorted by the political aims of those who are reporting it or, or rejecting it? There, there's the question. So how do we? So what do we do? Well, I would like to see more scientists getting involved in the debate speak for themselves, present the evidence in a way that's carefully constructed. But that, that's a conversation that's taking place in the, the academy right now. Um, Roger Pielka has a book called The Honest Broker. It's a really nice book on what is the role of the academic in policy debates. And he talks about the honest broker as someone who brings forward and lays out all the work that's out there and lets the social and political process work based on that. Some people agree with that. Some people don't. Some people think that, you know, scientists should come out and say, you know, let's put percentages on this and let's say, you know, okay, here's what science tells us. Here's the answer. We're not going to confuse things with uh, all the other, you know, sort of distractions from the consensus statement. It's, it's still being worked out of how scientists can communicate, but we need to because we live in an increasingly technological age and we're in a functioning democracy and people are voting on things like, um, you know, nuclear power. 
GMOs, right. nanotech, healthcare, gun control, uh, stuff, the issues that require good data and good analysis. Uh, how do we get that data analysis and how do we bring it into the public debate in a, in a serious way? We need to figure that out. But isn't this, when, when I hear you talk about more scientists being involved, my skeptometer just goes like this. Because, I, because I think scientists gets involved, who's going to listen to the scientist? Who's going to listen to the passionate, articulate, well-motivated scientist? The people who are already predisposed to listening to that particular people, that particular person. The ones that I'm concerned with are the ones that, that, that you mentioned, the people that might, that might feel, that, that might be absorbing a different sort of rhetoric, the ones that might be insecure for whatever reason, mm -hmm. the, might, the ones that might feel, the, might position perhaps falsely this idea of, of uh, global warming or, or emergent technologies as, as winners and losers in the market and being afraid themselves quite you know, reasonably that they might be one of the losers. Mm -hmm. This sense of broadening things to be able to speak to the people who aren't already the converted. I get this sense that if the sci more scientists get up, you'll just have you know, the same choir that just has more people that are, that are talking to it. I'm, I'm trying to think of a way that you can really move out and foster broader debate among uh, people who might have very, very different views. And some of your work is speaking exactly to that. I mean, that's my sense. Mm -hmm. get, get, another, get another bushel full of people from the National Academy of Sciences. I'm not convinced that in and of itself is actually going to do anything. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm saying in my work is that the spokesmen that people will respond to are those that are part of their reference group there cultural community, their tribe. Right. And so an evangelical is going to listen to an evangelical more than they may listen to the National Academies of Sciences. So we need more evangelicals speaking on this issue. Uh, we need business people. We need politicians. We need people from groups that people trust. And then we need it at the local level. People need to hear it in the Qantas Club, in the Golf League, at the town hall. It has to be not just a top-down movement, which it has been largely right now, Absolutely. but a bottom-up one. Um, that's where I think uh, their Bill McKibben has actually been able to do something. He's created this, this grassroots movement. I have questions about his end game, but he's been able to create a constituency around this issue. Young people, he's been able to turn it into an issue of social equity. Your world's going to be damaged by what we're doing now, and you're going to live with it. And so he's able to mobilize. But I'd like to see this as something that people will start to connect new, that um, anglers will start to say, you know what, this is going to start to ruin the habitat for the environment I enjoy. Sure. That you're going to have, um, you know, people start to look and say, you know, holy smokes, Michigan just lost 90% of their cherry crop last year because of some very strange weather. Scientists are saying it's climate change. This is bad. And they'll start to connect it to their own personal interests. Then you'll get change. Then you'll get people moving on it. And this is something which has long confused me. So help me here. Because my sense is you have an, an, an awful lot of people who are hunters, who are fishers, who uh, Fishers, <laughs> who are fisher people, I guess you <laughs> yeah. would say now, uh, who, uh, who might statistically be, be associated with the Republican Party or, or what have you, and who you would think would be supreme environmentalists. I mean, these people live in a world where the, their environment plays a, a, a much more preeminent role than, than your average, whatever, Democratic guy in Manhattan or something like that. I mean, th these people have a very, very deep relationship with the environment. So it's a, it's, it's a bit confusing to me that envir environmental issues are always portrayed as uh, you know, these hip, urban, young, lefty people who are on one side and these, these old farts in the country that don't believe in that. I mean, it should be the people in the country that, that actually are arguably more passionate about these issues. It's perplexing to me. Anyway. Well, the, these broad categories we have to be careful of because sure. it's not all Republicans, it's not sure, all Democrats. And it starts to, if, if we rely on it too much, it starts to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're a Republican, you must not believe in climate change. Uh, that doesn't work. 
And uh, there are plenty of instances of um, anglers and hunters actually advocating very strongly for habitat protection and working alongside environmental groups. So it's yeah. not an uncommon alliance. Sure. sure. I wanted to get, uh, before I move over to, to, to flourishing and, the, and, and your newer work, uh, I just wanted to get back to this idea of opening up a market. And one of the things that, again, from an objective 30,000 foot level, I've heard uh, President Obama talk on several occasions about trying to um, look at new technologies, emergent technologies, uh, environmental uh, environmental issues as an opportunity mm -hmm. uh, for which American innovation can actually, uh, or, or upon which it can flower. And, and because unquestionably one of the things that's most impressive about uh, America from a corporate perspective it's, is its ability to innovate, is its ability mm -hmm. to marry scientific thinking, innovative thinking, entrepreneurship and so forth in a very substantive way. Um, is this message getting through at all? Because when you were talking about the winners and the losers, I mean the obvious sort of big picture look as well, there should be kind of repositioning, right? I mean, there's always been constraints. You take a 100-year, 500-year, whatever it is, look at, at the constraints that are put on society. And the, the people who adopt look at these constraints and say, right, we're not going to just keep hammering against the wall over here. We're going to take this and turn it into an opportunity and innovate and do something new. And there's a lot of money to be made if you mm -hmm. can do interesting, environmentally positive things. Is that, is that spirit being somehow adopted now, mm -hmm. increasingly, or, mm -hmm. or not so much? Well, in the, in, you know, we're, at the risk of sounding like hyperbole, we're in the midst of an energy renaissance. That's good. Hyperbole's great. I mean, yeah. keep, keep we're, we're, we're shifting right now. The, the way we think about energy right now, flash forward 30 years, it's going to be so different. Uh, let's start with the grid. Um, the grid's a joke in this country. It's falling apart. We're going to spend over a trillion dollars improving the grid in the next 30 years. Is it going to be the same grid we have now? Absolutely not. Will it start to take care, uh, advantage of smart grid technology? Will we start to unify the grid to uh, be able to get energy from where it's created to the demand loads uh, in urban centers? Um, what will be the future of distributed energy and what will actually make parts of the grid less important, uh, energy in independence, energy so, uh, protected from the grid is something that's important to many people. Um, there are appliance manufacturers that have appliances ready to go that can actually talk to the grid and turn on when energy's cheapest if we have real-time pricing. Right. Demand management is, is very strong. Different kinds of energy sources are out there. You can go to the, the auto dealer right now and buy one of many drivetrains, whether it's hyper-efficient diesel, improvements in the internal combustion engine, hybrid, electrics. Um, when will fuel cells come online? There's a lot of research in that. There's a lot of research on battery storage. Once that's cracked, sure. you're going to watch the mo automotive sector shift. Uh, a lot of uh, innovation. If you just saw the cover of The Economist, they were talking about the car of the future. Right. You know, We're moving towards cars that can actually drive themselves. It sounds like science fiction, but what information technology can do to the smart home um, people's awareness of their energy bill is increasing. That will drive behavior change. Um, all these things are happening around us. And a lot of the political debate just gets hung up on Solyndra. That's all they see. But there's a lot more innovation going on. There's a lot more exciting stuff going on. And um, again, where we'll be in 30 years is going to be so different. So how culturally can, can this be made to happen faster? I mean, there. there there are reasons, real reasons for optimism, which mm -hmm. is obviously what you're saying. But at the same time, there, there are all these cultural issues that are dragging us down. How can we, how can we move in a, in a faster direction? 
Well, I mean, if we had an electorate that was more supportive of these issues so that their politicians would support, you know, shifts in the tax code, um, that move beyond the stale idea that any kind of uh, tax structure or subsidy is some kind of an intrusion on the market, which is totally bizarre. I mean, the, inst the market is a man-made set of institutions. The government sets the rules. We, we can't price fix, we can't collude, but all of a sudden, well, you're actually having subsidies for um, you know, solar companies. That's somehow the government picking winners and losers, but don't touch my tax credit for my home mortgage, which right. is the exact same thing. Um, the government does this. This is what the government does. And if we see the future in a particular area, it's smart, a smart government that will start to push in that direction. But now we're getting into the cultural debate. Okay, now you're talking about industrial policy. No, we're a free economy. Don't get industrial policy. You know, that's where start to, you know, these hot button issues start to emerge and people start to resist and say, no, the government shouldn't be doing that. Um, we, we somehow have to get beyond that. But uh, so let me move to flourishing now, because because you talk about making, uh, or, or at least one of you talks about making cultural changes. You, you're supportive. I should say that this yeah. is a dialogue between you and John Ehrenfeld. That's right. And um, and it's certainly written that way and, and, and portrayed that way. And one of the questions I, I'd like to uh, bring out is how much of this you actually believe. But he says mm -hmm. some things that are that are very, very bold yes. and very, very provocative in terms of changing cultures and, and, and virtually utopian. I mean, e even in places that are much more, um, much more receptive to that sort of social change than the United States, which I would still argue is, is, mm -hmm. is, is a harder ball to move than, than, than some of these others. Um, so, so let me just start up, because I've rambled a little bit again. Mm -hmm. I, I do that. Um, <laughs> this is the beauty of editing, is that you can, you can take all this stuff out. Um, so it, it, we can talk about how, yes, we should move from here to there, and yeah. this, is, this is the cultural impediment that we have, and, and, and so forth. Um, in, in flourishing, it seems, to me that the, it seems to me that the goals are much more, um, much more ambitious than that. Yes. So uh, what are those goals, first of all? Mm -hmm. Tell me what they are, and then tell me how much of them you actually subscribe to as opposed sure. to John. Well, John was my teacher when I was a graduate student, and he's been a mentor to me ever since. I see him as a visionary. I see him as looking much further out than most of us can see. He's a very deep thinker. He's been thinking about these issues for a long time. And he, um, he's very philosophical. And what I think he's pointing out is where we need to go for the long term. And he's trying to point out that some things we're focusing on now are not going to take us where we need to go. So. Yes, you can buy an incandescent or a compact fluorescent light bulb and screw it in. That's great. You're reducing your energy load, but there's still a lot of materials that went into that. You're just making the production of light less bad. How do we shift from there to actually making our technological society more good? Uh, he makes the the re I think a really powerful point that all our efforts right now are on reducing unsustainability, and that's a fundamentally different thing than creating sustainability. And in our discussion, we got it. I was trying to get him to explain in, in more clear terms. And he described it this way, and I really like it. He said, in, you know, in Iraq, we stopped the war. Mm. That's fundamentally different than creating the peace. And so he's not against windmills and compact fluorescence and hybrid cars, because he says that's slowing the velocity at which we're heading towards that brick wall. But if we want to stop and reverse course, we have to think fundamentally differently about this problem. Now, I don't expect 
people to adopt what we're talking about in this book tomorrow. Sure. But I do think he offers us sort of a guidepost of where we need to go for the long term. And it really, he centers it on if we are going to get a grip on sustainability, we have to rethink consumption. And we have to rethink a lot of the dominant values in our society that you are defined by what you own. And the bigger the house and the fancier the car, the more status you have, the more worth you have, both self-defined and other-defined. If we don't get a grip on that, we're never going to get there. And so it really, to him, pushes on the idea that fundamentally, if we are going to be sustainable, we have to rethink our dominant conceptions of what it means to be human, and what it is, what's our relationship to the world around us, and how we relate to each other. It's a tall order. It's huge. But what I think he's doing is putting climate or putting sustainability on a par with a massive shift in our thinking akin to the Enlightenment. In the Enlightenment, we moved from you know, superstition and not understanding the world around us. It's animated by these cosmic forces to science and the mechanistic view and that we can, we can start to you know, break apart mm. the elements of nature. That has gotten us some great advances, but it started, brought us some real problems. How do we start to shift again in our conception of ourselves as a species and our relation to the world around us? That's how big sustainability is. So he's, to me, he's calling that out. This isn't simply just you know, adopt a couple of technologies and continue to live the way you're going to live. We have to shift in the way we think about how we live and how we relate to the world around us. It's, it's big thinking. It's very big thinking. And it's this whole, it centers on this whole issue of sustainability. I mean, you can ask, well, what is sustainability? And there's this understanding, well, if you sustain something, you keep it going. And, yeah. and for me, there's a sense that, well, if, if the ship is actually going in the wrong direction, you don't want to keep it going at some, yeah. <laughs> at some level. And, and, and a point we make in the book is that the word sustainability itself, it, it, it's about stasis, sustain, mm. keep it steady. And instead, and this is John's definition, he, he comes up with the definition of sustainability as the possibility, we don't know if we're going to hit it, the possibility that human and other life forms will flourish on earth forever. All those pieces are critical, but the word flourishing, it's about thriving, it's about growing, it's about, it's about um, positive dynamic change. And, and that's a much more attractive goal. And so, you know, are we talking about happiness and satisfaction or are we talking about more stuff and I think he's trying to pull out that distinction. So I want to I want to pick on that a little bit or I want to explore that a little bit I want to get a deeper sense but first I want to understand what you believe because mm -hmm. because it's portrayed very clearly this is his definition this yep. is what he believes he's the visionary and you're having a conversation <laughs> with him and bringing that out yeah um, but I'm having a conversation with you right. so <laughs> I, would, I would like to know what uh, how much of that you are broadly sympathetic uh, towards how mm -hmm. you would define sustainability and, and where your personal feelings are. Well, I am sympathetic to what's in the book. At the root of it, it is a change in our culture. It's a change in our beliefs. But I'm teaching students and I'm talking with companies in the here and now. And so my work is focused more on the, you know, the pragmatic, not what we're going to do in 50 years, but what we're going to do in one, two, five years, 10 years. Um, what are the steps that we can train our students to go out into businesses to get them to, to, to develop the solutions to the problems we face. Um, when I teach my students, I'm pointing out to them that um, business is the most powerful institution on earth. Uh, if business isn't developing solutions for our social and environmental problems, they will not be developed. That capitalism is malleable and it is shifting. 
um, that there are multiple signals of this shift and companies are to less or more degrees attentive to those signals. Um, I don't expect students to be able to go into companies right now and say, you know what, Ford, stop making cars and start to think about mobility as a totally different thing. That's not going to happen tomorrow. The idea of going into ExxonMobil and saying stop producing oil, that's not going to happen tomorrow. But to start to be part of a broader process, to start to shift the way uh, the kinds of uh, products and processes, solutions that companies provide, that's what I'm focused on here at, uh, as, a, as a teacher. This is, so this is confusing to me. I'm going to say something which may sound provocative. I don't mean it to be that way. Um, I, I enjoyed the book very much. I thought it was very inspiring at, at times. And I certainly very much concur with this notion of, of having to get beyond defining yourself through what you have. Uh, you talk about uh, caring, taking, or, or someone, John talks about caring, taking mm -hmm. precedence over, over needing, yep. this, this notion of moving beyond just having more stuff and, you mm -hmm. know, the one who has most stuff at the end of the day and dies wins, you know, th th this sort of silly um, rampaging consumerism that, that I think to some extent afflicts the culture of, of all Western uh, market uh, economies. Um, but at the same time, the recognition that this is, uh, this is a way towards economic growth. It's, we, we're not going to sit around and pretend like we're living in, in some you know, Buddhist monastery somewhere and that, and that this is uh, market economics and capitalism is a tremendous driver to move all sorts of people out of poverty. You look at China, I'm not mm -hmm. going to go to them and say, oh, you shouldn't be trying to actually have something. You know, so, so I understand all of that. But at the same time, when I think... If this gentleman is calling for a sea change in our cultural attitudes, and you yourself are talking about how we have to get beyond past stereotypes and move forwards and have meaningful cultural dialogue, and, and the driving force is this notion that this whole idea of sustainability, it seems to me, is just sort of fiddling around the edges with stuff. Mm -hmm. We have to actually move towards the next level of awareness and, and, and recognizing our place in human society and integration and all the rest of that stuff. Well, the last place I would look and this is my provocative face. Yeah, I told you it was coming. Mm -hmm. The last place I would look for to try to change the hearts and minds of people to move from a less consumer-oriented uh, uh, philosophy is a business school. Mm. I, I mean, the, to me, when I, when, I, when I look at that, I think you know, people who go into business school, they're interested in getting really good jobs and you know, getting lots of money and buying lots of stuff. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's, that's, that's my perspective. I would look at people who are studying philosophy, who are studying, you know, whatever, Renaissance history, yeah. who, are, who are studying uh, cosmology. Those are the people who I, I would think would have more resonance with that than the average guy who goes to business school. Now, you're not only uh, teaching business school, but you also see all the students. So you're going to right. tell me that I'm completely wrong. So go ahead. Well, you know, there, there's definitely a demographic you describe in business schools, but more and more students are coming into business schools because they want to make a positive change in the world, and they see that business is a power base to do it and they see the, the potential opportunities. You know, I told you when I first got into this, it was to try and teach students to go into companies and get them, help them to see environmental issues as strategic opportunities. We have more and more students coming on saying, I don't want to go into a company and teach them, I want to do it myself. And a lot of, com a lot of our students are going into startups, creating startups. Um, I just was meeting a group of students, have a business plan to try and get something going. Uh, the idea of creating a company that can try and address social and environmental issues. Um, there's a whole idea now of the hybrid organization, the, the kind of organization that lives in the blurry space between the for-profit and the non-profit world. Right. Um, here, you're here in Ann Arbor. Go take a look at 10,000 Villages. That's a non-profit 
using a for-profit model, and you have for-profits that develop very strong social and environmental missions. We're seeing more and more students that want to do that. They want to make a positive impact in the world, and they see a business as a way to do it. So this is really a draw. So business schools today are, are really drawing people who are more, not just entrepreneurial, but idealistically motivated, who Some. actually want to have... Not across the board. Sure, of course. Yeah, well, there's no yeah. general, but but yeah. but on a, you're seeing and, and has that all, have I have I just been missing the boat here? I mean, has this been going on all the time? Because that, that has not my my sense of business yeah. schools normally. But has that changed? It's changing, and um, there you know there's uh, student organizations that are geared around that net impact, business social responsibility. Um, here at the University of Michigan, we have the Herb Institute, which is a joint program between the business school and the School of Environment. Students in three years get an MBA and a master's from the School of Natural Resources and Environment. It's been here since 1995. Uh, we're on a steady upward trajectory in terms of students. Um, we graduate about 30 a year now. Uh, we have about 400 alumni. And these are students that really want to make change. They really want to change the world and, and they see a business as a way to do it. And they don't see the objectives of um, business and the objectives of protecting the environment as, as in opposition. Sure. And the, it, we're not going to have the solutions as long as they're set up in opposition. When I, when I teach these issues in a business school, I do not teach corporate social responsibility. If I do that, what I'm telling students is go into your other classes, learn how to maximize ROI, return on investment, okay. return on assets, net present value. Come into my class, I'm going to teach you a different value set. That's not sustainable. You know, the first step in having a sustainable business, they have to make money. Sure. And so how do you do that in a way that actually can also accomplish some environmental and social goals? And so there are some limits. Um, you know, policy is necessary, but market drivers take the form of insurance companies and investors, consumers, um, up and down the supply chain. There's all kinds of pressures out there that are driving companies in this direction to start to attend to these issues. Um, you know, GE and eco-imagination. Why are they doing this? Well, they're not wrapping their arms around a tree. Uh, there's an opportunity to make money by promoting technologies that are part of a carbon-constrained world. That's exciting. That's what our students get jazzed by. So I get that. I get the fact that, uh, I mean, this is how I really started, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. I don't think there is any sort of intellectual disparity between this notion of doing things that are more productive environmentally or less damaging or being sensitive to, to environmental needs and actually being successful within a corporate milieu. I, mm -hmm. I think that, that makes complete sense to me. Um, and I understand how if I'm a young person today and I'm interested in starting a company, I'm, I'm interested in making money, I can also quite coherently... Uh, believe very fervently in environmental protection mm -hmm. and that these things are not diametrically opposed. They're not opposed at all in principle. That I get. What I don't get is this idea that, uh, that, that, that John is saying in your mm -hmm. book, this notion that I should be thinking about how I should redefine my cultural values in terms of moving towards this happy day where I'm not, <laughs> I'm not actually concerned so much with what I own, I'm not, I'm not thinking, I'm not defining myself by the possessions that I have. I'm not focused on consuming. I'm not just average, you know, the, the consumerism. Because that seems integrably tied, inextricably tied, there's a word that I was looking mm -hmm. for there, um, to, to the notion of moving things forwards within a market economy. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that's naive. Maybe I'm just completely wrong. But mm -hmm. it seems like that's the sort of thing that I wouldn't expect somebody who's going into a business school to have any sort of resonance with, nor would I have... Uh, nor would I expect people who are funding a business school, for that matter, and the, mm -hmm. and the, the, the industrial sponsors. So am I wrong there? I think that uh, what John is providing is an aspiration. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever achieve it. We will never actually achieve a sustainable society. We'll never get to a point and say, done, we're sustainable. Uh, it's, it's, it's a continual striving towards 
uh, an objective that I frankly think is not is not you know possible in in the, as an end state, but he is giving us sort of a a direction to reach towards a north star, if you like. We're never going to touch the north star, but it gives us a direction to move towards it. Um, our students come out of school today, and they have to live in the in the here and now. And so, uh, I love what John is trying to say. I endorse what he's trying to say, but I don't think he's saying we're going to get there tomorrow. Sure. He's saying that this is this is where we need to reach for, but. Um, how we get there requires steps along the way. That's where my students start to come in. So what do you hope this book will do? Um, it's just coming out now. Mm -hmm. it's, like I say, it's, uh, I, I think it's very inspirational. It, says, mm -hmm. it, it certainly makes people rethink. Yep. Um, what, what are you hoping the reaction will be? From well, the idea that it inspires, that it really takes sustainability uh, to a different place, uh, the conversation. I do think that the world, word itself has become stale. Um, right. It means everything to everybody, therefore right. nothing at all. Right. Dan Estee at Yale has said, let's throw the word out. Um, and really give it some cultural roots to say it's, it's really how we think about ourselves and the world around us. That is what's at the root of it. So you really have to change your beliefs and values. And this is consistent with the work I'm doing on climate change. If you're really going to deal with climate change, you really have to confront some of the worldviews we possess. If we're really going to deal with sustainability, we have to confront some of the worldviews that we possess. That, that, that I agree with wholeheartedly. Yeah. And so bringing it into that domain and giving us that long-term aspiration of what we really should be thinking about, I, I think is quite exciting. And if it inspires people and gets them to stop and think, they may not change tomorrow. But if it starts to sort of adjust the conversation, has its place, and sort of shifting it towards where it really needs to be. That's what I hope to happen. And what has the reaction been so far? Is there well, it only just has come out, so it's, it's too soon to say. I'm looking forward to the first review. We haven't seen one yet. Okay, but your friends and your colleagues, and it says this, oh, you know, Hoffman's out on a ledge. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing of that yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, um, so I, I want to I get to this idea of, of fostering real impact, because, again, one of the things that, 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 that really impresses me is that you're trying to get beyond these, these, this, these silly polarities and actually really yeah. do make a difference, really do drive society in a different way. I would argue that the United States is a, is a very curious society to try to drive. That's the one in, you know, in which you live and the one where you have all your experience. Um, on the other hand, it's tremendously influential. But I want to get back to this point about if we're looking at something like climate change, it seems to me that it necessarily involves a concerted effort of people from across the globe. It's a global phenomenon. And we necessarily have to have, it seems, for anything significant to happen, the United States to play a significant role in that global uh, mission and that, mm -hmm. that global development. And there is this issue here, as you've described, which is that any sort of multilateral, multinational, global governance type, global governance type of, of, of solution or, or suggestion um, is a real political hard sell in all sorts of different quarters. So how do we get beyond that? How do we how do we move towards some sort of progress on that? <laughs> First step is get out of the recession we're in. Sure. <laughs> I think that, that really causes a problem in, in this conversation. And I don't know if it's the UN. What if it was the WTO? I don't know. Um, we do have global governance. It is not something that, you know. Works. It, it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, but seriously, yeah. I mean, where, this, okay, this is just my opinion. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I turn into one of these sort of 
radical red meat type of Republicans when, when, when you start talking about the UN. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, to me, it's just for the most part, aside from you know, a few things here and there, uh, I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't trust it. Yeah, and so maybe the UN isn't the right body to do this, that doesn't mean the conversation stops. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. But and, and moreover, the conversation has to recognize what's worked and what hasn't worked. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it has to be a realistic conversation, yeah. not a utopian conversation. So yeah. what? But what, what would you do? What would you do if you were Obama and you were and you were yeah. in that situation? I don't know. That that now we're getting a, a little outside my my area of expertise of international diplomacy or international politics. Fair enough. <laughs> but this is the speculative part of the conversation. Mm, yeah. One thing I do think, and in, in, in I'm not trying to to deflect your question. I think but, you are. Actually. Well, I think that <laughs> one thing about academics getting into the public debate is 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 uh, stick to your knitting. You know, when I see economists giving opinions on climate science, and when I see climate scientists giving opinions on cap and trade, I, I cringe a little bit and say, you know, one step of an academic stepping into the public debate is stay where you're an expert. You know, Jane Fonda should have stuck with acting and not got into nuclear power, right. and I, I think the same is true in this area. So, you know. Recommendations on international policy are a little, little tricky for me. Okay, but public policy. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get to this sense of, okay, you've got something to say. Yeah. You've got experience. Uh, I'm some guy who's sitting in Wisconsin or wherever, right? And I, I, I'm concerned about these things. I'm worried about my crops. I'm worried about, uh, I'm, I'm worried about the recession. I'm worried about all sorts of things, mm -hmm. right, as, as, uh, as everyone is. What should I do? I hear these, these calls for a cultural change. I understand that we have to make progress. I understand that we're politically at some sense mm -hmm. of a stalemate. There's the, something has to give. Mm -hmm. What should I do? How, sh how should I go forward? Well, first of all, I don't. You don't come out and say we're going to change your culture. We're going to change your values. Uh, no one has that power. Sure. You change behavior, and values follow. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. You can have a, um, a set of policies, and, and people can start to adopt the, the values behind them. And sometimes they won't. You know, we had prohibition. It was a disastrous mistake. No one accepted it. It wasn't a, quite a disastrous mistake because there were quite a few robber barons who wound up founding universities afterwards. Too. <laughs> there was there was a positive spin-off from yeah, the Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know the the, the so you, you try and um, change behavior and then then values will follow. And uh, I mean this you know what are the, the the ways to do that? How do we get people to start to think differently? Um, I think it's it's starting to happen around certain technologies, certain uh, changes. People are, are moving more into urban centers now. They find you know new urbanisms and area and architecture. Walkable cities is much more attractive than car habitat. Um, there are some shifts that are happening that are consistent and 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 foster a better style of living, a better standard of living. I think that. You know, one thing that the environmental movement has been rightly criticized for is focusing overly on the negative. Absolutely. And go this direction or bad things are going to happen. A much more profound message is go this way because it's a better, a better direction to go in. And uh, that's where I think people, another element of where people's backs gets up on, on climate change is they hear criticism. You know, it's your fault because you, you live in that big house and drive that fancy car. It's your fault. Right. And people get naturally offended by that. But... There's, there's, you know, in the area of green building, there's exciting stuff. Uh, you know, anyone who doesn't hyper-insulate their building this, uh, this day and age is out of their mind. They're throwing money out the window. Um, there's a really nice book series called The Not-So-Big House of don't big this big box with these huge rooms and then worry about decorate. Shrink it down. Use that extra money to make the, the space inside much more attractive, much more uh, flexible. Um, really, Yeah, it's really cool stuff yeah. and a much more beautiful way to live. Um, um, that's, I think, where I would start to focus on this.
So are you optimistic as a general rule? As a general rule, I am, yeah, yeah. You, you gotta be. I mean, we make a point in the book, because um, I asked John this, you know, are you optimistic? And we, we, uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the book. We, we, we go through this little rip on the difference between hope and optimism. And optimism is looking at the odds and saying, you know, the odds tell me it's going to work out. Hope is a little bit more of faith, saying, you know, whatever the odds say, I still believe it's going to work out. And so you can be pessimistic and hopeful. Um, you know, the odds are against it, but I still think it's going to work. And um, if I wasn't hopeful, I'd give up. I'd go. I wouldn't so you're hopeful, but are you optimistic? I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. But I'm hopeful because of the students I see and the younger people who really want to roll their sleeves up and get this done. You know, David Orr describes hope as a, a verb with its sleeves rolled up. And I really like that. And, and I, I look at my students, and these students that are here in this program that I'm running, where they get this dual degree in business and environment, oil and water, want to find a way towards getting business solutions to our environmental and social issues. That's exciting to me, and that's hopeful. So, so now it all makes sense to me. Of course, it's just your business students. They're just statistical outliers. All no. the rest of them are these rapacious, <laughs> consuming, corporate, you know, Different SLBs schools, more or less, but these programs are popping up a lot because students want this stuff. They really do. And businesses want it. The best signal I, I can give you right now is that um, our students are starting to be recruited now by more and more of the top management consulting firms, McKinsey, Deloitte. They see a need for it. It's part of the business environment. It's exciting stuff. Hmm. Okay. Well, you lost me there because I don't <laughs> know. The, fact, the fact that McKinsey and Deloitte are interested doesn't actually turn my crank for, for Well, very they can but sell I mean, it. They can yeah, sell it. I, I, and, and, but, you know, the students also that want to start their own business yeah. or go to work for, um, you know, Ford Motor Company on alternative forms of mobility. What is the future? Um, of mobility and changing the conversation from how do we make another car, how do we think about mobility. The, our students are going in that direction. And it's, it's not just Michigan. There are uh, programs around the country, these dual programs or certificate programs, they're, they're popping up a lot. So that's, that's not only sign for, for hope, it seems to me, that's sign for optimism. I mean, that's yep. some data there that, yep. that, that you've got. And if you yep. were to look at the students that are coming through your door now as opposed to 15 years ago, is there a sense of a of more passion, more uh, enthusiasm for making a difference in the world? I think so. More passion and more sense of the possibilities. Uh, the, the, the students that are coming in are um, very excited, coming in greater numbers. It's also diffusing into the rest of the population. You know, it isn't just our students. We have these herb students at Michigan, but in the, the, the business environment, the education environment here at Ross is, is strongly influenced by HERB, by an area called Positive Organizational Scholarship, uh, nonprofit management, uh, base of the pyramid studies, a lot of that activity, it diffuses throughout. And, uh, you know, and there are other schools that look at this and say, not our bag, sure. and that's fine. Um, but there are plenty of schools that are starting to focus on this. Stanford has a strong program, Duke, Yale, Santa Barbara, um, Northwestern, uh, MIT, Harvard. I can go down the list. They're all developing programs in this area. Okay. What about outside the United States? Increase? That's a great question because not only programs like this, but business schools in general. It used to be the American Business School was the dominant player. A lot more serious competition from Europe and Asia in the business school world. And, um, you know, the, the idea of business as a social force in society is not as new, particularly in Europe, mm. as it is here. 
When you mentioned competition, I mean, is that, is that really the right way to look at it? I, I constantly question these things of, you know, there's a sense of, I understand you, you, you know, schools compete for faculty members and schools compete for students as well. I get that. But on the other hand, on the overall scheme of things, presumably, if, if there really is, if you're absolutely right, and I hope you are, that, that there are all these young, dynamic, socially conscious individuals that are coming through, that at some level, it's, it's really not competition. Right. I mean, it's, at some level, it's, it's all to the good for, for everyone to have right. more and more of these things being as successful as possible. Right. And both of what you said is true. Um, you know, if a school calls me and says, would you come out and talk to us about how to develop a program like this, I'll gladly help them. I don't close sure. the books. We're not, there's no proprietary secrets here. Um, by the same token, business schools are competing for applicants, competing for students. And right now, the applicant pool in business schools is flat. And that's because part, of the economy, partly the economy, um, but it's partly you know, viable business schools outside the United States. The United States is not the only game in town anymore. And, um, and so in that sense, there is a competition. I didn't talk about uh, Builder's Apprentice. You won all sorts of awards for that, too, didn't you? I, I won a Connecticut Book Award, yeah, yeah. Best Memoir of the Year, Biography of the Year. I'm really so pleased that, with that. So that's, that's obviously something you should be very proud of. Thank you. Um, but do you have this sense that you want to be, uh, that you, all this academic stuff, I know you're trying to change society and all the rest mm -hmm. of that, that's your day job, but I mean, do you, do you have a sense of working with your hands, get a, being, being immersed in, a, in, a, in an environment where you can be at peace with yourself and actually see the fruits tangibly of your labors? Yeah, that's a struggle. Um, you know, building is very satisfying. Uh, uh, it, it, it's it's, um, it's um, meditative. It's very meditative for me. And, uh, and it's also, it's very clarifying. Someone can come in and say, you know, this house is a piece of junk, and I'll look them dead in the eye and say, you don't know what you're talking about. But someone can take one of my books and say, it's a piece of junk, and I have to say, well, why do you say that? Um, a central element of the book, though, that does connect with what I do as a teacher, the book is about building, and it's about my experience going from a novice to being the superintendent on this 29,000 square foot house, but its central theme is the idea of following your calling, following your passion. I mean, when I quit as an engineer, turned down Harvard and Berkeley, and had to sit down with my parents and say, I'm going to be a carpenter. Well, they thought I was out of my mind, and everyone did, but I was doing what I was really excited about doing. And for the kids today, it's a message I really want them to hear, because I, I think that there's something dangerous in our society where we're teaching kids to start building their resume from like ninth grade. And what we're telling kids is the measure of your life is what other some, someone else sees in it on a piece of paper, and that's a very terrible message to teach someone, because at the end of the day, it's your life, and you only get one of them. And is it going to be something that you're going to really feel you have contributed what you came here to do? Um, that really does drive a big part of my teaching. I, I like to challenge students by saying that, you know, we ask the wrong question, what do you want to be when you grow up? What if we ask kids, what are you meant to be? You know, that's a totally different question, a totally different thought process. And, uh, and so that is a theme in the book, is, is find what that is. And even if someone tells you you shouldn't be doing it, it could be well-meaning people. Do it anyway. Do what really makes you excited. That's a perfect point to end on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat my last question because I see people at the door clamoring oh. to get in. Oh, is Thank it? You. Okay. Thank you very much, Andy. This yeah, was a pleasure. pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, 
This conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About the Environment, along with separate discussions with Joanna Haig, Charles Shepard, and Edie Witter. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.